0: This morning's passage comes to us in the 22nd chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, verses 34 through 40. Let us pray. Oh God, when, where we are ill-formed, reform us. When we are stuck, set us free. We give thanks for the power of your Spirit that does just that. In Christ's name. Amen. These words come to us in this particular part of the gospel where Jesus is being examined by the religious authorities known as the Pharisees and the Sadducees who are trying to get Jesus caught in some form of heresy. Before this, the, heresies go, the Pharisees go to him, sorry, and ask, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? And, see, and, and Jesus turns the question around and lays it back on the questioner. And after that, the Sadducees, another form of the authorities in the temple, they go to Jesus and ask, if a woman is married seven times and is widowed seven times, then when she goes to heaven, who she will be married to? And Jesus again flips it and turns it back on the examiners. Today is the third of those encounters. The Pharisees have regathered and they come back to Jesus. Hear this word. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord, your God, with all your heart and with all your mind and with all your soul. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. This is the word of the Lord. In a conversation this past week with eldest daughter and psychologist, Megan, she asked me what I thought about what was going on in the Middle East. I first wanted to wax eloquently and sound like I knew what I was talking about by giving her a short discourse on the last 3,000 years of Jewish-Arab history. But what came out was Yes, I am worried and anxious, for I'm afraid that this could turn into something that is a huge historical event. There was silence, and then Megan said, Dad, I needed to hear you say that. Sometimes you tend to sound so theological, stoic almost at times, that you can share your anxiety helps me feel like I'm more normal with my own. Ever the psychologist? She nailed me. We preachers, especially we Reformed Presbyterian preachers, all loaded up with our high view of education and intellect, our degrees, our modicum of Hebrew and Greek sometimes forget that we are human. Too often we sit back and sound like pundits more than preachers, analyzing and speaking on current events like morticians working on cadavers without any sense of grief for the human being they are working on. So yes, I am worried and anxious about what's going on in the Middle East. How could we not be? But sadly, I'm not surprised. I went to Israel in 1998 with 15 other young Presbyterian ministers because the good Presbyterians, Tom and Ann Cousins, knew it was beneficial for young ministers to actually experience the Holy Land if they were going to preach about it. And so they paid for most of the trip. We toured all of the biblical sites, we worshiped at them, and at night we would gather with different presentations from both the Israeli side and the Palestinian side. During our trip, I discovered that my unvarnished bias toward the Jewish story was starting to be worn down a little, and I began to experience a little more empathy for the Palestinian plight. Because during this trip, at one point, we were standing on a mountain, and our guide said, you see all those little towns down there? Those are called facts. And a fact is, if an Israeli wants to start a settlement, all they need to do is pitch their tent there, whether they have government permission or not. And if two or more join them, it is now a settlement and it is now a fact. And this is before alternative facts got to be the big deal. A fact was a fact. It became fact. These occur over and over again more and more so that Palestinian lands of nomads and farmers and orchard growers are less and less. It has been happening since Israel became a country, a state in 1948. The the land belonged to the Palestinians a thousand years before it belonged now to much of Israel. But then it belonged to Israel 3,000 years ago, as they took it from the Palestinians. It's complicated. So sitting around one Sunday night, you know, we preachers, we were going to fix it. It was Sunday, and Sunday, and we stayed in this Tantun ecumenical uh, uh, community, and there was a Catholic priest who ran it, and he said, We don't drink on the weekdays, but you can have alcohol on Sundays. And so, right, it's the day of rest. So we would all get us a couple of Jewish beers and sit around and talk about things on Sunday night. And we were sitting around talking about how how we needed to fix the Arab-Israeli crisis. We were going to fix this, and nothing like 15... Presbyterians, and the amount of hubris we can create after a couple of beers (laughs) to make your stomach hurt. One of our group didn't say a whole lot, just listened, and near the end, he calmly said, you're all full of (laughs) you-know-what. You really think you can come up with a solution when the best minds in the world have been working on this for almost forever? Ever since Israel was established by the Balfour Declaration in 2017 by the the British Kingdom and became a state fact in 1948 by the larger world community, there has been fight after fight and crisis after crisis in this holy land. But what's different now are the stakes, the stakes. For the Israeli military force is way greater than it's ever been, and the tactics of Hamas are way more sinister. And that combined with instant news, Iran and Saudi Arabia both taking opposite sides, which also means Russia and the United States involvement, that with Europe and Ukraine, China and Taiwan, Democrats versus Republicans, Republicans versus Republicans, the whole world seems on the edge of war. You with me? But that's not what worries me most. All this conflict, I think, is symptomatic of a deeper evil but one that's much harder to spot. I'm talking about the loss of moral virtue across our globe. But let's just keep it at home. Let's just keep it in the United States. A couple of years ago, I read this prophetic book by Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who was hes late, Jonathan. He died two years ago, but um, after he wrote this book, He was the chief Jewish rabbi, uh, chief of the United Kingdom. And he was making the case that since the Enlightenment and its sister, the Reformation, especially the last couple of hundred years, we have witnessed the loss of religious influence on culture. And we all know it's true. We all know, in As you look at the numbers, the numbers are down compared to what they were in the 1950s. But so is the influence, resulting in the corporate loss of civic-mindedness, a sense of community and moral reckoning in the country that used to take this seriously. Now, without a God and God's people to give ourselves something greater than ourselves to follow. What we have left is only ourselves. And left only to ourselves means that the way I choose it to be and the way I choose to think and the way I choose to believe and whatever it is I choose to believe and the way I choose to act and the freedom I choose to practice is all about how I choose it whether it be about assault rifles or indiscriminate abortions, about gerrymandering districts or restraining voting rights, whether it be shaming others on Facebook or Twitter, identity politics, refusal to be vaccinated and mask, the restriction of free speech on college campuses. Then whenever all of this comes together, we experience the of our social fabric that keeps us together. Yes, my bigger worry is the rise of the me and I culture over the we and our culture. The foundation our forefathers built, the we and our, as a community together that is now on the, on the wane There are a lot of reasons. I've said them before. But the least, not the least of these, he lists five, but not the least is what Rabbi Sachs calls our rise of the therapeutic culture. It really started in the 60s. And it is a culture that that understands that the world is really all about me. Therapy is good, but... Too much therapy tends to develop too much meanness, and Sachs calls this culture uh, a culture that reinforces how I feel and think as more important than how we feel and think. Instead of communal morality against a market-driven enterprise around gambling, Pornography and unchecked Wall Street culture, racism, gun laws, redlining. It's now about the politics of individual immortality. No, sorry, wrong word. Individual immorality around predominantly sexual and political issues, around identity or contraception rights, around politics of the individual to say i know what truth is and you can't tell me differently it's against what we see now and what happened is that the west began moving in this direction 500 years ago which is the dark side of the reformation that once because of the reformation we have been given the right to education, and to read the Bible for ourselves rather than have to depend on and accept the word of the priest or the church, once we had access to it individually, it also began the dark side, which is the rise of our own individualism. I can read the Bible for myself and discern for myself what it means. Those are the two ups and downs of the last 500 years. Did you know that after the election of 2016, 15% of Americans stopped talking to their friend or relative they did not agree with? That was 2016. The numbers are up, last time I checked, but I don't remember what they were. In 2019, Peggy Noonan, renowned columnist of the Wall Street Journal, wrote, people are proud of their bitterness now. America is making more every day of the lonely, angry, and unaffiliated. So, Rabbi Sachs lists in his book what moral values we should reclaim as those who believe in God. These values he lists, they come right out of the Bible. They're not political or economic. These values are love your neighbor, love the stranger. Hear the cry of the unheard. Liberate the poor from poverty. Care for the dignity of all. Let those who have more than they need share their blessings with those who have less. Feed the hungry. House the homeless. And heal the sick in body and mind. Fight injustice wherever it is and for whoever it is done against. And do these things because being human, we are bound by God to a covenant of human solidarity, whatever our culture or color or class or creed. He ends by saying, We need to remember our purpose and duty for a moral concern for the welfare of others, and it comes out of our faith in God, an active commitment to justice and compassion that the prophets in the Old Testament. And Jesus in the New Testament continued to preach. Sachs reminds us that these are moral principles, not political ones. And they come out of the Bible. They have to do with conscience, not wealth or power. And unless we practice these moral values, our freedom will not survive, he says, I agree. The free market, he writes, and liberal democratic state together will not save liberty because liberty can never be built by self-interest alone. I-based societies eventually die. Other based societies survive. This is historically and evolutionally true. We need each other And the way we live together is by practicing the moral virtues found in religion. This is how God made things, and this is made clear in the Bible. As I said, our founders understood this, which is why they stressed the separation of church and state. Not that the church should not have a voice in politics, but that the state must not, cannot have a voice in the church, one of the other tenets of the Reformation. And what worries me, worries me to death, is that without the influence of the church, which is waning, and religion generally, and moral virtues specifically, we are toast as we have seen in the last 15 years of disintegration, the rise of populism, totalitarian authoritative leadership that inevitably follows, which incredibly has had the support of many religious and Christian people. Why is it that it's always the men in charge? I'm just, I'm just saying. With all that as an introduction, and I know it's serious as hell, with all that, let's turn to the text, the passage about why it's so important to draw from Jesus' words, being grilled by the Sadducees and Pharisees, the religious police. He answered it in a way only a genius Jesus could. They wanted to keep the peace, those religious legalists, (laughs) There were 613 laws out of the Torah that Moses and the people put together by God in order to keep the people together as a community as they wandered in the wilderness. But what happened was those 613 laws became the focus rather than God's self. And they became legalists around it. And Jesus knew it. And they didn't like Jesus because he knew it. Because he broke all those, not all of them, some of them. He healed on the Sabbath more than once. You don't do that. He he healed others when he he shouldn't have by touching them and and they were ritually impure. You don't do that. He he picked grain on the Sabbath. You don't do that. He forgave others only in a way God could do it. You don't do that. They knew his sermons. They knew his parables. And they were against Jesus because their hyper-legalism was at threat. So what's going on in this passage is they try to catch Jesus. And he simply says to the question, what is the greatest commandment? Well, love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul. and and, and, And that's right out of the Bible. It's the first and greatest commandment. It's right out of the Old Testament. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Right out of the Old Testament. And all the law and the prophets, Jesus says, hang on these two commandments. Love God. Love neighbor. It all hangs on those, on love. The commandments hang on love. Love, is love a commandment? Can you command someone to love you? or to love others? Apparently so, for God has. The real surprise here is that all through the Bible, and Jesus only brings it, reforms it, brings it new, is that these religious accusers end up breaking the greater law of the moral code of love you see love is not self love it is not sentimental feeling like love it's not rom com kind of, kind of love it is an act as I was saying to the kids love God, God with all your heart and mind and soul is to love God with everything we have and to love your neighbor as yourself Whew. and for Jesus our neighbor is anybody we encounter on the way as the parable of the good Samaritan tells us But now that we have worldwide access, does that mean our neighbor is everybody in the world? I don't know. Did you catch the fact to his answer? He is saying to us that our moral imperative is to love God and to love our neighbor. It is an imperative, he says, and when he stands up to those Sadducees and Pharisees in this morning's passage, he is unequivocally clear about it. The problem with keeping all the laws is that we do so because we just want to feel righteous, self-righteous. And Jesus, you know, you know what that's like? You know what it's like to like feel righteous, that sort of religious, righteous self? You know, I want, I want another lapel pin for never-missing never church and Sunday school so that I can finally have it go all the way down to my belt. Remember those days when we used to give those out, those little lapel, you know what it's like? It's like sitting in, an, in the parking lot of an ABC store and taking names of your church people coming out with a brown bag. You know those people. They're always looking out their windows at their neighbors. Tisk tisk tisk. They forgot to take out their recycling bin. It's like those people who pick up a something that's been written by someone with great earnestness and they pick it apart with the gra- bad grammar and syntax without caring about the meaning of it at all. You know those people. You do. Look in the mirror. That's who's coming after Jesus in this morning's passage in the name of religion. And it's all about righteousness. Self, self, me, me, righteousness. And Jesus says, nope. It's the law of love. Get out of yourself and love God and love neighbor with all you've got. I don't know if you saw the CNN interview with Leroy Walker, the father of one of the many men shot in that terrible tragedy in Lewiston, Maine last week. His son had heroically tried to stop the shooter by grabbing a butcher knife, but he didn't make it. And, he, and Leroy Walker's being interviewed, and, and he was asked how he was doing, and he's got huge red eyes he's just been crying for ever and Leroy says my way forward is through faith and forgiveness i can't hate this person i've been taught different than that i hope anyways i believe in god and i have to feel this way You can run around this world hating people, but if you do these kinds of things, they will happen more and more. Even Wolf Blitzer was speechless when Leroy was through talking. Friends, this is what it means to live by the law of love. And we're called to practice it every single minute. And the more we practice it, the better we get. Does it surprise you that Jesus understands that the law and the heart are completely connected? Does it surprise you that Jesus says, You shall love the Lord with all of that and your neighbor as yourself? Does it surprise you? If not, it should. just preaching to myself. Let us pray. Oh, God, thank you for giving us your presence and your commandment that holds us accountable to be greater than we would be alone or by ourselves in our own little worlds. In Christ's name, amen.